Let's turn over to Mark chapter 6. This is where Jesus was feeding the multitude. Mark chapter 6 and verse 35. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. Send them away that they may go into the country round about and into the villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. And he answered and said unto them, Give ye them to eat. And they said unto him, Shall we go and buy two hundred penny worth of bread and give them to eat? A penny was a day's wage, we learned from one of the other parables that Jesus gave. So this is two hundred days worth of income. I suspect that that would be a lot of money today. If we were to put this into relative terms, this would be like a person that makes 40000 dollars a year saying, you know, twenty five thousand or thirty thousand isn't enough money to feed all of these people. And he answered and said unto them, Give ye them to eat. And they say unto him, Shall we go and buy two hundred penny worth of bread and give them to eat? And he said unto them, How many loaves have ye go and see? And when they knew they said five and two fishes. And he commanded them to make all sit down by companies upon the green grass, and they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided he among them all, and they did all eat and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments and of the fishes. And they that did eat of the loaves were about five thousand men." That's an awesome passage of scripture and there's a lot in these verses. But I wanted to just use this to point out some things that go along with what I've been saying about the power of hope and your ability to see with your heart things that can't be seen with your physical eyes. And I think that this is a great example of it. First of all, he asked what they had. And they, they looked and said it's not sufficient. He said, you give them something to eat. You know, they wanted to send the people away and let them get their needs meant somewhere else. And I really think that this has a lot of applications for the church today because typically speaking, the church is only taking responsibility for spiritual, eternal things. And they tell people about heaven and hell issues. But in the average church, probably not the average church that's represented here, but the average church in Christianity, if a person was to go and say that they had a financial need and that they were destitute, they'd say, well, have you gone to get a loan? Have you been to the government? Have you applied for food stamps? Have you tried this program and they try this? And the average Christian church would send people with financial needs somewhere else. But we're the ones that have the answers, and we need to be teaching people how to do things in business, like what Paul was talking about. And we need to be the resource. We're the ones with the blessing of God. It says, we would lend unto many nations and shall not borrow. And all people of the earth will see that we're called by the name of the Lord. You know, the church needs to make the world envious, just like Abraham. They said, depart, because he was greater in wealth and resources than they were. The church isn't representing God accurately in this area. And we're saying they need to go somewhere else. Jesus is saying they don't need to depart. Teach them about prosperity. Teach them how to take the word of God and prosper. If the average person was come to the average church today and say that they've got some kind of a sickness or disease, they'd say, well, go to the doctor. Is there a treatment for this? Have you tried this? Have you tried that? 
And yet Jesus, that's not what he would do. And I'm, that's not a theory because in the 17th chapter of the book of Matthew, the man who had the lunatic son that was having the seizures came and he tried to get Jesus' disciples to cast the demons out and uh, they couldn't do it. And then Jesus came down off the Mount of Transfiguration with three of his disciples. He asked what was all the crowd about and they said, this man came forward and said, I brought my son to be delivered of this demon and they couldn't cast him out. But if you can do anything, have mercy on me. How did Jesus respond? Did he say, guys, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have left you alone. This is above your pay grade. You can't do this. I should have been here. Don't feel bad. Don't, don't. No, he said, you faithless and perverse generation. How long am I going to be with you? How long can I suffer you? And he said, bring him to me. The Lord was speaking directly to disciples who were unable to meet the needs of the people. And he says, you're a faithless and perverse generation. And I don't think he said it mean. He wasn't mad. He's just blunt. He was to the point that this is not what I want my representatives to do. They don't have to go to the world to get healed. Thank you for both of those amens. Most Christian, you know, most spirit-filled people, the very first thing they would do is exhaust the medical field, and only if the medical field can't handle it would they look to God. I don't think that's what the Lord would want us to do. And then when it comes to emotional things, somebody comes with a... Uh, mental problem, have you tried going to the doctor? Have you been to a psychiatrist? Have you had this treatment? Maybe you ought to take this drug. It's the very first thing that a lot of people do with their children is put them on Prozac. And you know what we used to manage that with was a belt. (laughs) We used to discipline them, but now that you don't discipline them, you got to dope them up to get them to where they can function. Jesus said, they don't have to depart. You give them something to eat. And you know what? He wasn't saying this to be critical of them or condemn them, but they had power and ability that they didn't recognize. Likewise, we as the church, we are the answer to the world's problems. And you know, I'm not going to get real political here tonight, but since we're in the midst of a political season, you know, we talk about voting and I believe it's important to vote. We talk about getting involved. I've got some of our students that have met with the mayor and we're encouraging people to run for public office. It's the only way we're ever going to change this thing. And so we encourage that. I've got a student that's uh, been asked by, uh, I think it's the Republican Party, but anyway, asked by some political group to run because she's black and a woman and they see that as a tremendous asset to be able to get one of these minorities to run and that'll stop all of the liberals and stuff. And so I encouraged her to go for it. So I believe we need to be involved in politics, but the power of the church is not political. The power of the church is to change people's lives. And if people get changed, if we were to have a revival that swept this nation and people were on fire and passionate about God, they would vote godly instead of buying in to a lot of the things going on. So really, the answer isn't political and getting people pitted against each other. Uh, John Adams said it this way, that democracy is totally unfit for anybody but a moral people. If America ever ceases to be moral, democracy will destroy us because we will vote in ungodly, immoral people. And that's what's happening. 
America is being destroyed. I think it was Abraham Lincoln that said, America will never be destroyed by a foreign power. If we fail, we will fall from within. And that's exactly what's happening because the church hasn't been the salt and the light and we haven't been affecting people. So the, we need to be involved as citizens, but the real power of the church is to change people's lives. We are the salt of the earth. We are supposed to be making a difference. And brothers and sisters, I don't know how many people are represented right here, but we have hundreds of pastors. And if you had just a hundred uh, people in your church, that would, that would be tens of thousands of people represented here. But we have some with many more than that. And then the people that will go out of your church and influence others, there's easily hundreds of thousands of people influenced by the people that sit in this room. And if every one of us was salt and light, and if we weren't sending people to the banker and to the doctor and to the lawyer and to the psychiatrist, and if we were preaching the Word of God and meeting needs, I guarantee you we would do more to affect this nation than ever uh, encouraging people to get involved in politics. It's not a one or the other thing. We need to do both, but we need to put the emphasis. We have been given power. And this is what the Lord was saying to His disciples. These people don't have to go somewhere else. You take care of it. You feed them. You meet the need. And immediately they pulled out their pocketbook and said, man, 200 penny worth. 200 days wages isn't enough. And they looked at their resources. He wasn't saying that they could meet the need out of themselves. Boy, that is a great truth. We could preach on that all night. But you know, people many times are overwhelmed thinking that they just can't meet the need. You know, here's an aside. I'm just going to say this quickly. And I've got a study, uh, a study Bible, the Living um, Life for Today commentary that goes into all of these details. But it says that this was towards evening. And that's the reason they told him to send the people away because it was getting late. And every, any place that they could get food would be closed. So it wasn't early in the morning. This was late in the day. And it says later in verse 45 that at evening he constrained his disciples to get into the boat. So it was late in the day. We don't know, but it's probably at least 2, 3 o'clock. And at evening, 6 o'clock, they got into the boat and left. So that means that this feeding of the 5,000 had to take place in a maximum of three hours. And if you figure this out, there was 5,000 people. If and we know that there were women and children there because the young guy is the one that gave his lunch to them. And so if you just figure 10,000 people, and there easily could have been much more than 10,000. But if you figure 10,000 people seated in these groups, I've got it worked out in this uh, commentary. I don't have the figures in front of me. But that means so many groups per disciple. And I figured that if one disciple made a trip got an armload of food, made a trip. He had to have, I think it was 13-something groups of 50 per disciple. I forget the figures. Anyway, don't argue with me over this. Go get my Life for Today commentary and you get the exact figures. But you, you, they had to go to 10 or 15 groups or whatever it was and feed the people. And so if you took an armload of fish and bread and ran out trying to feed the people, you could only do that so far. And if you could make a trip every seven minutes among 12 disciples, it would have taken over seven hours to feed those people, one serving, and the scripture says they had seconds. So you know what this means? It could not have happened that Jesus blessed this food, break it, and it multiplied in his hands. The only way this miracle could take place 
was that he just blessed it, broke off a piece and gave a tiny piece of fish and a tiny piece of bread to each disciple and they headed to two or three hundred people with this little bit and they were going to feed them. Imagine this. We've been talking about imagination. See, you know, right now, I don't know how many people we have, 600 people or whatever, and it's five, 600. And if I had one piece of fish and one piece of bread and I said, all right, I'm going to feed all of you and uh, you can get seconds, thirds, as much as you want. And if I started dishing it out, you know what? My tendency would be to say, God, what I have isn't enough. But it was enough because it had been blessed, because it was anointed. And the miracle had, to, the only way this could have taken place in less than three hours is for the miracle to take place in the disciples' hands as they broke it off. But you know what we would have wanted to do? We would have wanted to have Jesus break it off and have the supply already meant and have this huge stockpile of food over here and then we would gladly run and get an armload and take it and run back and we would be glad to serve the people and meet the need as long as there was no faith involved in it. As long as there was no chance that it wouldn't work, as long as it was a past tense thing. But the only way this miracle could have happened was that the disciples had to head towards these 300, 500 people, whatever it was, with a tiny bit of food. And they had to have faith that I'm going to do what God told me and it's going to meet the need. And you know, this is symbolic of Him telling us, they don't need to depart, you feed them. Our first thought is, but I can't pray for them. They've got an incurable disease. They're going to be dead. I can't meet this need. And our first response is to say, but God, I don't have enough. I, and you look at yourself but in your spirit, man, you are more than able to meet this need. The Lord said that you have the same power on the inside of you that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. I've seen people raised from the dead. And you know what? That's nothing compared to Jesus being raised from the dead. Because when Jesus was raised from the dead, the devil and every demon in hell was standing there trying to stop that stone from being removed. I mean, all of Satan's forces were against that, and yet Jesus overcame them all. So the power that raised Jesus from the dead is not out there that you can pray down. It's already on the inside of you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. You've already got it. You've already got this power. He didn't tell us to pray for the sick. He told us to heal the sick. There's a difference between those two. You don't approach it and say, oh God, we are nothing and we have nothing and we can do nothing, but we believe you can do all things. Would you stretch forth your hand to heal? That's a chicken prayer. <laughs> it's an unbelief prayer. Right way to pray is to say, Father, thank you that you gave me this same power that raised Christ from the dead and you told me to heal the sick. You said, if I lay hands on them, they will recover. And then you take authority and you command the healing to come to pass. You speak and you command things to happen. Not because you're somebody special, but because God Himself is on the inside of you. And when I talk like this, I have people always come up and say, well, it says over in John chapter 15, verse 4, that without me, you can do nothing. Jesus said that. And you know what? I agree 100%. But what I disagree with is I'm never without Him. He lives on the inside of me and He'll never leave me nor forsake me. So for me to approach a situation as if I don't have resurrection power on the inside of me is unbelief and it's doubt. You need to recognize you are the answer. 
The people that need to be delivered from depression, the people that need financial blessing, the people that need to be healed, the people that need to be encouraged, they don't need to go to a shrink or a banker or somebody else. They need to come somebody who's a representative of the Lord who will stand there and tell the person the truth and speak the word to them. We do have the answers of the world. We do not need to be sending them someplace else. And if the church had this attitude and was discipling people and training them, then you know what? The unbelievers out here wouldn't think that the church is just for eternity. One of the re- most of the people, if you follow these surveys, the vast majority of people believe that there is a God. They believe there's a heaven. They believe that there's a hell. They believe that they need to get right with God and they don't believe they're right with God, but... They just keep putting it off because they don't see the relevance of the church to everyday life. I mean, they're struggling in their marriage. And they don't see the church as helping their marriage. They're struggling financially. And so what they need is another job. When the truth, what they need is to learn the principles of God and how to prosper. They feel like that, man, I'm sick and I don't feel like going to church. And they don't see the church as beating their physical needs because the church hasn't accepted that responsibility. They've advocated it and given it over to the doctors. They've given the responsibility to care for the poor to the, to the government, which is a pitiful way of meeting the needs of the poor. We should be meeting the needs of the poor. We should be helping people. We ought to be the ones that help them. And yet we've given this over to other people. And so the unbelievers don't see the relevance of the church. It's not that they doubt that God exists. And they plan on getting right with God before they die. But why do it now? I need a job. I need healing. I need this. They ought to see the church as the source of all of these things. If we were living like this, I guarantee you we would be making an impact. And if somebody wants to run for political office and, and boo God at their convention and try and get rid of God, they, they would be guaranteed defeat because they would have to reckon with the church instead of oh, ignoring it. But the church doesn't have that much influence in our society because we've just compromised and made it all about, well, it's just for heaven and hell issues. That's wrong. So anyway, Jesus was telling them, they don't need to depart, you feed them. And then he gave them a little bit of bread, a little bit of fish, and says, go meet the needs. You know what? They had to have some faith to do that. And as they broke it is where the miracle took place. That's the only way they could have done it. And they went down the road just breaking it. They never had to go back and get another piece. The miracle took place in their hands. That's pretty awesome. That's a great example of what we as ministers are doing. Because you know what? None of us in ourselves are sufficient to touch a person when their life is at stake, when their marriage is at stake, when their finances are at stake. There's none of us that are sufficient for that. And I even tell our students, you know, I think it's healthy to have a godly fear when you stand up in front of people. Not an ungodly fear where you are just intimidated and you aren't recognizing that you're called. But I'm saying to recognize that, God, this is bigger than me and I need you. Like we were saying, I need you more today than yesterday. I need you more than I ever have. That's a godly thing to stand in the pulpit and say, God, without you, I'm dead. I can't do this on my own. It's a blessing not to have any great charisma and to be a hick from Texas and all of my other liabilities because you know what? I just don't have anything in myself to trust. Amen. And if God doesn't show up and if he doesn't help me to talk, I'm dead before I get started. It's a good way to be. Amen.
And so he said, they don't need to depart. You give them something to eat. And he made them all sit down. And then look at this in verse 41. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and break the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided he among them all. This says that he blessed what he had. What he had, most of us would look at that and curse it. Say it's not enough. This will never work. This is stupid. This is silly. I'm going to look like a fool. And we would curse what we have in our hands. But Jesus blessed it. This is something you've got to learn. Whatever you've got, whatever your situation is. You know, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. But you know what? There are some good things about me. And I haven't gone and done some of the things and it hadn't affected my heart. And I don't have a lot of baggage with me. And people trust me. I'm candid to, to the point of getting in trouble at times. Amen. That little thing we showed you, but by the time my staff got through editing it, it was half that long when we put it on the website because I just say whatever I think. And you can't say this and you can't say that. But you know, one of the assets of that is that people trust me and they believe me. They know I'm not out to con anybody. I'm just telling you what I think. And so anyway... Regardless of who you are and what your liabilities are, God can take it and if you would bless who you are instead of cursing who you are and speaking about how you can't meet the needs, then God could supernaturally multiply it. And then when you see the supernatural power of God flow through you, God gets the credit instead of you. You know, there's a minister friend of mine that he's not a real slick speaker. But when I go in here, I enjoy it because he's not slick. I like it. I know he's speaking from his heart. And I don't always agree with everything he says. But you know what? I like it. Because I know that this guy didn't get it from someplace else. He's sharing what is in his heart. And I just, I like that. Makes you feel like you can trust this guy. He's not trying to con you. He's not manipulating you. He's just sharing what he believes. And you know what? You need to start blessing yourself. And God knew who you were when he called you. You know, I had a woman come up tonight. She's been praying for influence in her community. And she's been praying since she's here that God would give her influence in her community. And she got a call while she was here. And they want her to come and speak at some political rally and represent the Christian community. And she came up and she says, man, I got my prayer answered, but I'm nervous about, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I'll be a good representative. And I said, now, wait a minute. You were just praying and asking God to give you more influence. And I said, it happened here. Don't you believe this was God answering? Don't you think the timing shows that God answered your prayer? And she said, yes. And I said, well, if God has faith in you, who are you to not have faith in you? Man, if God believes in you, why wouldn't you believe in yourself? And you know, all of a sudden, it's just like the cloud lifted like, man, this is right. God believed I could do it. He chose me. This is what Paul said over in Philippians. He says uh, that, how's that say that God who called me? I'm going to have to read this. I can't quote that. How's it go? Philippians chapter 1. Let me just turn over here and read this. It it goes, "I, I thank God who counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry. Man, isn't that awesome? That's Philippians chapter 1 someplace. Or isn't it? Or where is it? 
Second Timothy, thank you. But anyway, it says something <laughs> to the effect that I thank God who counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Did you know if God called you to the ministry, God put faith in you. God counted you faithful. God believes in you. Who are you to curse yourself if God has blessed you? This is the greatest privilege on the earth, speaking for God, representing God. You know, nobody's ever offered me the presidency. They never will. Even if for some reason I was to run, I've got everything I've ever said on tape. It'd kill me. (laughs) The ones about, how dumb can you get and still breathe and nuke them till they glow and shoot them in the dark. Vegetarians, a name, an Indian name for bad hunter. If your dog's getting away, just kill him, amen. You know, things like that would destroy me, amen. But if for some reason I was to be offered the opportunity to be president, I wouldn't lower myself to become president. I'm representing a greater kingdom than the United States, amen. I believe this is a tremendous honor. But you know what? If God counted me faithful and called me to minister the word, it is wrong on my part for me to say I'm a child. I can't do it. It's wrong for me to curse myself and focus on my inabilities instead of focus on what God has given me. He blessed it instead of cursing it. That's one of the reasons that it multiplied for him and it hadn't multiplied for us. God knew you and all of your problems when He called you. And He still called you. And so you know what? Don't ever curse yourself. Don't ever sit there and say you can't do it. There's nothing wrong with admitting that you may not be the sharpest knife in the drawer and that you may not have everything worked out. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that despite that, you've got to believe that God called you and He has enabled you and you have to bless what God is called and anointed instead of cursing it. And here's the real point that I was wanting to get at. I took a while getting there, but it says in verse 41, when he had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves. You know that this is talking about more than him just lifting his head. Now I believe that he probably did physically lift his head and look up to heaven, but that's not what this is signifying. The Lord showed me this a number of years ago. And did you know that there are, I don't know, there's at least 30 or 40 scriptures I've got written down on a piece of paper up here about looking up and the significance of it. This isn't talking about just inclining his head. This is actually a Greek word. It's a compound Greek word, anablepo. And ana means again or repetition. And blepo means to see or to receive sight. This same word was translated 15 times in the New Testament, received sight, and four times uh, receiving sight, I think. Anyway, there's there's about 20 times in the New Testament that that word is used to refer to the blind eyes being opened. Look over here in chapter 7, verse 25. Here's that same word word being used. Uh, Mark chapter 7. And let's go back to verse 32. And they bring unto him one that was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they beseech him to put his hands upon him. And he took him aside. 
from the multitude and put his fingers into his ears and he spit and touched his tongue and looking up to heaven, he sighed. Did you know that that looking up is the same word that is talking about where Jesus looked up? Here he is again looking up and then he sighed. And I may be taking some license with this, but I believe that when he sighed, this is groaning in the spirit. It's just a different way of expressing it, but it was... He in himself, Jesus in himself was not adequate to open this man's uh, eyes and, I mean, his ears and have him speak. Pastor Bob Yandian spoke about that the other night, that in the natural, Jesus was a physical human being, a sinless physical human being, but he was a human being and he had to draw on the Spirit. This is why when he went in John chapter 11 to raise Lazarus from the dead... He groaned in the spirit twice and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. There's no record of him praying, but there is a record of him groaning in the spirit twice. And Romans chapter 8, verse 26 says, But likewise the spirit uh, helpeth our infirmities, for we know not our... That's not how it went. Have you got that? Romans eight twenty-six put up on the board. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself uh, maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. This groaning in the Spirit is intercession. And Jesus groaned in the Spirit because He in His natural self could not raise a person from the dead and He couldn't raise a person from the dead who had been dead for four days and had already started decaying. And so he groaned in himself. And then he says, I thank you that you have heard me. When did God hear him? When he was groaning in the spirit. That's prayer. He sighed. He looked up. And then he sighed. You know what this look up, here's my point. Every one of these instances, here's another one, Rome, uh, Mark chapter 8 and in verse... Uh, 22, he cometh to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man unto him and besought him to touch him and he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town and when he had spit on his eyes, he put his hands upon him and asked him if he saw it and he looked up and said, I see man as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up. You know, again, this isn't just talking about made his head look up. But this is that exact same word and it means to receive sight or to see again or to see double is what the uh, vines says, to see twice. You know what this is talking about? All of these instances and there's a lot of others. What this is saying is Jesus was in a situation where he had to feed over 10,000 people with five loaves and two fish and in his physical natural body he couldn't do that. It's physically impossible. And so you know what he did? He looked up. This goes along with everything I've been teaching. He saw with his heart. He received sight. He saw again. He saw double. Instead of seeing with his eyes, he saw what could happen through the supernatural. And he started drawing on the supernatural instead of being limited to the natural resources. Man, I don't know if you get this. But he went, this is talking about he looked beyond the natural. He looked beyond his physical limitation. He looked beyond natural law. And he saw into the spirit realm. He saw double. He saw not just with his eyes, but he saw with his heart. 
He saw with his imagination. He saw the potential that God had given him and he saw these people's needs being met. He saw the multitude fed. That's what it's talking about. I'm not saying that he didn't raise his head, but this is talking about that he saw with his heart. He was able to see this tiny bit of food of being enough. Nobody needed to depart. Just give him anything and he would take it and multiply it. He could meet the need. He saw differently than other people did and that's the reason that he was able to meet this need. And this is a perfect illustration of what we've got to do. We've got to see with our heart. We've got to be able to see things that can't be seen is what it says in 2 Corinthians 4.18. While we look not at things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. For things which are seen are temporal, temporal or temporary, but things which cannot be seen are eternal. You can see things with your heart that you can't see with your physical eyes. And when you come to a situation that what you have in your hands, what you have in your own natural ability is not sufficient for the, for the need, you're going to have to see with your heart. You're going to have to look up and you're going to have to see differently than other people do. And you know what? People all around you, we've heard Pastor Bob Nichols, Pastor Bob, all of us have talked about impossible situations in our lives and things that we've done. Bob Yandian was sharing kind of a testimony about how they got their church doing and how they, they just did things that couldn't be seen. And you know what? When you start saying that you're going to build a $47 million facility debt-free and stuff, other people can't see what you see. And they will look at things in the natural. And they will start trying to transpose their vision, their way of seeing things upon you. And if you aren't careful, you will adopt their attitude. It'll be like those spies that went out and says, you know, they were giants and we were like grasshoppers in their sight. Who cares how a giant sees you? It doesn't matter how the giant sees you. How do you see yourself? The problem was they said we were like grasshoppers in their sight and so were we in our own sight. If they hadn't have adopted the attitude and the sight of the giants, they would have been able to take that land. And let me just add something to that, that if you turn over to Joshua chapter 2, when they sent in the spies 40 years later, and when they went to the house of Rahab and hid, she came out and told them, she says, from the moment we heard of the God of Israel drying up the Red Sea, every man's heart melted and there was no strength in us anymore. You know, the truth is the giants didn't see them as grasshoppers. The giants saw them as the conquerors. Their strength and defense had already left them. And if they hadn't have taken this mindset, they were just thinking in the natural and thinking how the giants must have seen them, if they hadn't have adopted that mindset, if they would have looked at things through the covenant, if they would have seen a second time and seen the way that God views things, they could have entered into the promised land and it would have been a cakewalk. The people's defense had already departed from them. But it was this vision. They had an imagination and they saw themselves like grasshoppers compared to the giants. When David went out and fought Goliath, 
Everybody else looked at Goliath's height and they looked at David and they saw and they saw it was an unfair fight. But you know what David did? David looked at it as this uncircumcised Philistine. What that's talking about is this man doesn't have a covenant. It's not a fair fight. He hadn't got a chance because I'm the one with the covenant. I don't care how big he is. He doesn't have a covenant. This is unfair. I've got him licked. Amen. He looked at things differently. He saw with his heart. This is what I've been talking about is that you've got to be able to see. You've got to take the promises of God and see these things. If God has spoken to you about building a church, about building a ministry, about changing people's lives, about going out and doing something, seeing healings and people set free, you've got to be able to look past your own limitations and your own inadequacies and look past the board that says you can't do it, you don't have enough money, and look past all of the things that are telling you no, and look past the news broadcast that tells you, don't you know we're in a recession? Plan for failure. Back up. Do less. If you see the way that the world sees, you will get the exact same results that the world gets. But if you can look up, if you could see with your heart and bless what God has given you instead of cursing it, it's just a matter of time until I can guarantee you it'll come to pass. Man, that's powerful. And this is just an awesome illustration. When Jesus looked up, He did more than raise His head. He opened up the eyes of His heart. And He saw it. When He spit on that deaf and dumb man's tongue, and He looked up and sighed, He wasn't just doing something in the natural. He was seeing things from a spiritual, supernatural standpoint. When He had the blind man, and He led him by the hand... He prayed for that guy and that guy received a little bit of healing, a partial healing, but he prayed for him a second time and made this man look up. He made this man see with his heart. I don't believe that's just talking about that he lifted his head. He made him see. And this this is powerful. Let me just share a few scriptures with you that I pulled out. There's a bunch of them. But in Psalms chapter 5 verse 3, it says, My voice shalt thou hear in the morning... O Lord, in the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. Again, that's not talking about that when you pray, you've got to raise your head. This is talking about seeing with your heart. Looking up here is the exact same thing. I'm going to pray to you and in the morning, I'm going to look up. I'm going to see things spiritually. I'm not going to walk through this day as a mere human being and evaluate everything only on the physical realm and what I have in the natural, I'm going to see who I am in Christ. I'm going to see who you are in me and the power that you've given me. And he's going to look up. He's going to see again. He's going to receive spiritual sight. Man, that's powerful. In um, Psalms chapter 40, verses 25, 25 and 26, it says, To whom then will ye liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high. And behold, who hath created these things that bringeth out their host by number? He calleth them all by names. Um, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Notice this is talking about creation. And he says, who are you going to liken me to? In the context of this, he's talking about people who worshiped idols. 
And he, he says, lift up your eyes on high and behold the, who created these things. In other words, anybody with any spiritual vision, anybody with any spiritual perception ought to be able to look at creation and figure out that we were created by God and that we didn't evolve. And you know, this is totally politically incorrect. But it says in Psalms chapter 14 and Psalms chapter 53, they're identical Psalms, just a couple of words different. Both of them say, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And I tell you, people that think that there is no God, that we just evolved and all of this infinite complexity happened accidentally is an absolute fool. And I don't care how many degrees they have after their name. You could have 32 degrees and still be frozen. Amen. The fool has said that there is no God. And I know that people, you aren't qualified to say that. Anybody who, you know, you could go take a blade of grass out here. And you could pool the entire resources of the human race, all of our money, all of our brilliant PhDs. You could pool all of the wisdom of the world and you could create something that could look like a blade of grass. It may have the same feel. And everything about it may look the same, but you make a, you put a man-made blade of grass out there, it will never grow, it will never reproduce, it'll never spawn another blade of grass, it isn't alive, it is a cheap imitation. And if man, with all of our cumulative wisdom and money and power, can't do that which is least, how in the world can you think that without intelligence and without a God that all of this complexity could evolve. It's stupid. I'm not saying that to be mean. It's just stupid. How dumb can you get and still breathe? It's just stupid. Was that too subtle? And so he's saying, look up. Lift up your eyes and behold... Who put that up there? It says, lift up your eyes on high and behold. Man, can't you see with your heart? It says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter his speech. Night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no language or nation or people where this voice hasn't been heard. It's gone out into all of the earth. Psalms chapter 19, the first four verses. And it's, it's just shouting at us. Creation is shouting at us. And yet people can't see because they're only looking with these physical eyes. Nobody is as blind as a person who is only seeing with your eyes. You know, Helen Keller, I forgot the exact quote, but she said something to the effect that in a way she was glad that she couldn't see because she saw things that other people couldn't see. She was forced to see with her heart and she had perception and things that people with eyes couldn't see. I tell you, you can see with your heart. This is what Jesus did when he came into an impossible situation. What he had wasn't enough. He looked at it differently. He looked at it through the Spirit. Yeah. He saw himself meeting the needs of this multitude because with God, all things are possible. 
and his imagination, his hope was involved in that, and he saw things, and because of it, he performed miracle after miracle after miracle, not because he had more power than we have. In his natural self, he didn't have any more power than we have. And in his spiritual self, he gave us the exact same power that he had, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. The only difference between Jesus and us is the way that he saw things. That's the only thing that stops any person in here from fulfilling what God's will for you is, is that you are looking at things through human eyes instead of looking with your heart. You need to lift up your eye, your head, your eyes. You need to look. You need to see. And if you could see it on the inside, then you'll see it on the outside. If you can conceive it, then you'll see it come to pass. You'll give birth to it. Man, that is pretty simple. Hallelujah. Look at this. In Daniel chapter 4, if you aren't familiar with this, this is where... Nebuchadnezzar, this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, wrote the fourth chapter of the book of Daniel. And he was arrogant and he thought he was something special. He was standing there looking at the hanging gardens of Babylon that used to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And he was saying, look what my kingdom has done. And a voice from heaven came and says, it is spoken your kingdom is taken from you. And Daniel had interpreted a dream where he told him what this was all about. He says, you are going to be like an animal and you're going to eat grass for seven years and your hair is going to grow so long it'll be like fur. Your fingernails will be like claws and you're going to be an animal that eats grass for seven years until you find out that God is the one that rules over man. And he just went on and did his own thing. And as he was bragging about, look what I've done. Look at Babylon. Look at these hanging gardens. Look at all of this stuff. It said that a voice came and said, it is spoken. The kingdom is rent from you. And for seven years, he was an animal. And here's Daniel. Here's uh, Nebuchadnezzar writing this fourth chapter. And it says in verse 34, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven and my understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored Him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is from generation to generation. And I think it's the next verse that says, And, those, and He rules over all, and those who walk in pride He is able to abase. That's got to be one of the most dramatic passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. Was that? Anyway, there it is in verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. What an understatement. A man who became an animal for seven years finally came to the point that God is God, I'm not, and those who walk in pride he is able to abase. Man, I love that passage of Scripture. But here's what I just wanted to point out. It says, at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes unto heaven. This is more than talking about him just raising his head. He finally saw with his heart. He finally quit thinking like a mere man. He finally learned some things. And with his heart, he perceived and saw some things that should have been obvious to anybody but it wasn't, and he finally came to this place of realizing 
the existence of God and his relative unworthiness to him. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and that's when his life changed. In um, Luke chapter 21 verse 28 and this is talking about Jesus is talking about the end times and all of the terrible things that would happen all of this tragedy, wars, rumors of wars, etc. In Luke 21, 28 and when these things begin to come to pass then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. Man, this is descriptive of us and we've mentioned this a couple of times during this series, but you know in our political situation everybody's talking about how bad it is and where we're headed and people's hearts are failing them for fear. People's love is growing cold because iniquity is abounding. And yet Jesus said when these things in the end times, and we are living in the end times, and when these things come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads. Again, this is talking about more than raising your physical head. This is talking about seeing with your heart. See past the headlines. See past the gloom and the doom and the predictions and recognize that, man, this is the fulfillment of prophecy. This thing's about to be over. This is a time to be rejoicing. We know what's going to happen. We've read the back of the book. And you know what? If you could lift up your eyes and if you could see twice, if you could see with your heart instead of just seeing with your eyes, this is the most exciting time on the face of the earth to ever live. We don't hear that very much because we are so plugged into the world system that we hear the bad news of the world and they don't ever report the good stuff. You know, I've had people come to me when they say that I've talked about, I've seen people raised from the dead and miracles happen. And I've had people come and say, if that's true, why don't you let the news media know about this? Why don't you go public? Why don't you show these things and why don't you make people believe? And I said, you know what? The news media doesn't want to hear what I've got to say. They don't want to believe this. They would twist it. They would pervert it. They don't want to hear these things. And, and they just think, well, no, that's not the way it'd be. I guarantee it's the way it'll be. I've had people before. I've told them about my son being raised from the dead. I was there when it happened. And they said, that's a lie. I was kicked off the radio station in Amarillo, Texas because I, I said something about miracles and I talked to the station manager and that station manager told me that's a lie. Those things don't happen. And I said, it did happen. I'm telling you it happened. And he says, you're a liar. You know what people don't, they believe what they want to believe. And if they find Noah's Ark and if they find proof of this and proof, that's not going to change anybody. It'll change people who maybe wanted to believe, but they were being influenced by the world. But faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. It doesn't come through scientific discovery. It's not going to come through something else. It's not going to come because the news proves something. You can't make people believe anything. Some of you aren't convinced of that, but I am. So when these things come to pass, you need to look up, you need to see it differently. You know, I remember when the first recession happened back, uh, or I don't know that it's the first one, but the first one in my lifetime that was a major deal during Carter's time and the interest rate was over 20% and people were screaming about this is going to destroy the nation. And did you know, some of you might not know it, some of you are too young to remember, but back then they were saying that inflation was the root of everything. All crime was happening because of inflation, because people couldn't keep up. 
and that was causing it. This was causing suicide. It was causing people to go to drugs. It was causing adultery. It was, everything. It was the root of everything. If we could just solve inflation, we wouldn't have any of these problems. And you know what? The way I responded to it, I said, man, the Bible says the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. And I said, all that's happening is the sinners are losing control of the money and it's coming unto the believers. And I was excited and I was preaching that this is a great time to be alive. And, a, and you know what? It turned out that we prospered through that. Not as well as I'm prosper now because I'm still doing a lot of dumb stuff, but I still <laughs> prospered and God kept me going through it. And you know what? We survived and we made it. And guess what? Now inflation is nearly a negative inflation. And guess what? It didn't solve the problems of the world. And their opinion was wrong. And their opinion now is still wrong. They're still misdiagnosing the problem. And I don't care if we got 100% employment and if we were booming and if this and that. That's still not going to solve the problems of our nation. The problem is God versus the devil, Antichrist versus people who are serving the Lord is what it really boils down to. Man, we need to look up, we need to look past the news media and their evaluation of things and we need to see things influenced by the Word of God and recognize this is an awesome time. You know, Arthur Blessed has become a really good friend of mine and he just sent out an email and in this email, he was just praising God for the way people are coming to the Lord. And he gave hundreds of testimonies of people that are coming to the Lord. Muslims. There are more Muslims turning to the Lord today than has ever happened in the history of the world. Muslims are typically seeing visions of Jesus or repenting. Did you know that a, a mosque in Dubai uses my spirit, soul, and body workbook every Friday and teaches from my workbook to their whole uh, congregation. They just had a praise service in Dubai and over 500,000 Muslims turned out to worship Jesus and sing the same songs that we sang. Somebody says, how can this happen? I don't know. This pastor in Dubai told David and me when we, where was that, Germany we saw him or, anyway, he came to one of our meetings and I was asking him about this and he says in Dubai, and you know, there are militant Muslims and stuff, but he says in Dubai, you've got to be a Muslim to be a citizen. It's demanded. And he says, these people don't worship uh, Muhammad. They aren't committed. They're just Muslims because they were born that way. They are hungry and looking for help. And he says, we are seeing thousands of them born again, but they still call themselves a Muslim because they were born a Muslim and you got to be a Muslim to live there. But he says, man, they're serving Jesus. Miracles are happening. Arthur Blessed was saying he has never been in a Muslim country where he was persecuted. They received him. The only people he's been persecuted by were Christians. But he says Muslims have accepted him. He went in and he walked through Beirut when they were in the middle of... And he was just giving these positive reports about how awesome a day it is that we live in. Did you know that the average Christian doesn't have that attitude? Instead, we will talk about how bad it is. And I'm not saying that the bad doesn't exist. Darkness existed. But when God created light, it says he saw the light. Amen. That it was good. He focused on the light. And we are living in the greatest time that the church has ever known. We are doing things that couldn't have been done. 
you know, my broadcast, and I'm just one broadcaster. There's others that reach more than I do. But my broadcast has the potential of reaching 3.2 billion people a day. 3.2 billion people are under the television signal. That's unheard of. Nobody in the history of the world, I mean, I'm not the only one now, but prior to this time, nobody could do anything like that. We never had this potential. The Internet and all of the things that we're doing, it is the greatest time ever to be alive. I know, I've not counted lately, but I know that I know over 50 people who've been raised from the dead or who have raised other people from the dead. I know one man that raised eight people from the dead, two in one service. Did you know in all of the Bible there was only eight people raised from the dead that was specifically counted? And I know 50. That's in, that's in um, 4,000 years of recorded biblical history, eight people. And I know 50. How many of you in here have seen somebody raised from the dead? Look at this. Right here is probably 30 or 40 hands. This is four times as many as recorded in 4,000 years of biblical history. How many of you have seen somebody's eyes, blind eyes open? Man, that's close to 100. How many of you have seen deaf ears open? It's probably more than 100. Did you know that there were there was nearly 2,000 years in between the early apostles and just uh, back in the early 1900s with very few miracles happening? We've probably got more miracles recorded right here that you've seen than happened for nearly 1,500 or something years of church history. And yet we don't focus on that. We listen to all this bad stuff and talk about how bad it is and we focus on everything negative that there can be. But I tell you, it's an awesome time to be alive. When the darkness gets dark, then your little puny candle shines brighter. You know, if you were in absolute darkness, just a little tiny flashlight could nearly blind the person. If you don't feel like you got the brightest light, just get in a darker place. Amen. John chapter 11, verse 41. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And he went on and called Lazarus out of the tomb. When it says it, he lifted up his eyes. Again, I don't doubt that he raised his head towards heaven, but this isn't just talking about inclining your head. He could not raise Lazarus from the dead. And you know what he did? He looked. Again, it's that same Greek word, anablepo. He, look, he saw twice. He looked past the tomb and the fact that uh, Lazarus had already started decaying. And he looked and saw what God had put in his heart coming to pass. And he saw Lazarus raised from the dead. I don't know how many of you have tried to raise somebody from the dead. But you know what? Many times you'll sit there and think about what's this going to look like if it doesn't work. I remember a woman up in Denver one time. This has been 25 years ago. She heard me talking about this and she said, well, if Andrew could pray for a person to see them raised from the dead, I could do it. And so she had been praying and believing God to see a person raised from the dead. And one day she was getting gas at a gas station 
in um, Denver. And she was sitting there filling her car up, and she just saw two guys sitting on a, a bus bench waiting on a bus to come. And one of them sitting there smoking a cigarette, and this older man, he just kind of stood up for a moment, grabbed his heart, and fell over on his face. And she thought, man, I'm, God put me here for a purpose. And so she went running over there, and, and there was already getting a crowd around. And so she kneeled down and said, in the name of Jesus, come back from the dead. And nothing happened. You know why she whispered? Because she was thinking about the people around her. What are they going to think if nothing happens? And she whispered a couple of times. And then finally the Lord reminded her, Lazarus, Jesus yelled with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. <laughs> and so she just stood up and said, and she commanded this guy to come back from the dead. And he just sat up and looked at her and he says, my God, it's true. And she says, what's true? And he says, my wife told me if I died, I'd go to hell. He says, I was in hell and I heard you yell at me to come back to life. And he said, would you pray for me? She got to lead him to the Lord. And she said that guy who was sitting there with the cigarette in his mouth, just his mouth fell open. That cigarette fell right on the floor. Amen. But you know what? You got to see yourself. You got to see the, what will happen when the miracle happens instead of seeing what happens if I get bold and start speaking and it doesn't happen. If that's what you're seeing, it's not going to work. You got to lift up your eyes. You got to see beyond that situation. And you've got to see with your heart the Word of God coming to pass. And Jesus had to do this with Lazarus. He lifted up his eyes and then prayed. And knew that it was going to come to pass. John chapter 17 verse 1. This is after Jesus had had the Lord's Supper. Last communion with His disciples. He went out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And John 17 1 says, These words spake Jesus and lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify Thy Son that Thy Son also may glorify Thee. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. Again, this isn't talking about just inclining his head. But you know what? He was communing with his father. He was seeing with his heart. He was seeing. He knew that the crucifixion was coming. He knew that he was going to be doing all of these things. And he was praying about it. And he wasn't dealing with things from just a human standpoint. He was seeing with his heart. He had a hope that was set in front of him. Is what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Most of us, if you could even imagine this, if you were somehow or another the Savior and if you were going towards the cross and if you were facing all of this, most of us would be fixated on the pain and the suffering. And because Jesus was human, he dealt with that and he talked about it. He did not want to do it. But he was able to look past that and for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. You know how he was able to endure? I've already used this verse one time in this uh, series already talking about uh, look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith, lest you be wearied 
and faint in your mind, and I was relating that to your imagination. This is where you faint because you're picturing the wrong thing. If Jesus would have been picturing the suffering, and if that would have been what he was focused on, he would not have been able to go through with it. But he set the joy that was before him. You know what that was? You and me. Somehow Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I, you know, I don't know if he specifically saw us. He, he might have seen every believer throughout all eternity, but in a sense, he saw people like right here, worshiping him and blessing the Lord and honoring him. And he saw our lives changed. And he says, it's worth it. Because he looked at you and he looked at me and he says, man, they're worth it. They're worth all of this suffering. We would have focused on the cost. He focused on the prize, what, what the price was going to purchase. And that's what we've got to be able to do. When you get to where people are attacking you, Satan is trying to get your focus off of the goal and off of what he wants you to do. And he's trying to get you to lick your own wounds, to start thinking about yourself to thinking about the hurt and the pain and what somebody has said about you. And it's just insignificant compared to the benefit. i got people that hate me. I've had people do a lot of things to me. But you know what? We're living in a place where it's worth whatever I've had to endure. It is more than worth it. And then that's just in this life. Man, when you get to heaven, I'm going to be compensated so much so that it's not even worthy to mention in the same sentence the suffering with all of the glory that God pours out and all of the reward. And if you're sitting there licking your wounds and hurting because of what somebody has done to you, it's just because you don't have a strong hope. You're focused on the wrong thing. You aren't looking at Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. You aren't following His example. He didn't focus on the suffering, but for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross and despised the shame and is set down at the right hand of God on high. In Acts chapter 7, this is where Stephen had given his witness and then he was being stoned to death. And as they began to stone Stephen to death, again, how would you deal with this? Most of us would focus on, this isn't fair. All I've done is stand for the truth and I'm being treated wrong. And we would have focused on the injustice of it. We would have focused on the pain we would have thought about, man, what's going to happen to my family? Is my insurance paid up? All kinds of things go through people's head. But here's what Stephen did. It says in Acts chapter 7, verse 55, But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. You know, when it says he looked up steadfastly, this isn't just talking about raising his head. It's this same thing. It's the same word, anablepo. He saw twice. He saw not just with his physical eyes. He saw with his heart. And when he says he looked steadfastly, that means that it isn't something that he just took a glance and caught this and it just happened. He focused his attention. He was looking to God. He was looking past all of the persecution and the death that was coming on him. And you know, he was rewarded by God, actually opened up the heavens, and he saw Jesus standing at the Father's right hand. The scripture reveals that he's seated at the Father's right hand. This is the only time post-resurrection that Jesus is standing. And you know what I believe it was? This was the first martyr of the church 
the first person who had stood his ground. And Jesus literally stood up in honor of Stephen and opened up the heavens so that Stephen could see Jesus honoring him. And you know, because of that, I believe that man getting hit and pelted with rocks, it wasn't even that big of a deal. To see Jesus standing and honoring you, man. You can look beyond the physical to where you see things with your heart. And if you can get into that realm and live with hope where you see, where you see God's Word and things coming to pass, it literally just in a sense inoculates you from this world. It makes you so that all of the pressures of this world just run off like water off a duck's back. It puts you in a bubble. You know, some of you heard me use this example, but I'm going to use it again because it's a great example. But when I first got really turned on to the Lord, I encountered God. I never saw anything with my visible eyes, but in my heart, I saw the glory of God. I was caught up in the presence of God for four and a half months, and God's love just became super real to me. And then I got drafted and sent to Vietnam. And in Vietnam, I was in a bubble. I was seeking God. Now, I had some depression and discouragement, not because of Vietnam or because of any of the things that happened there, but because I was so in love with God and I had tasted a reality of God that was so real, I just figured you couldn't live on that level in this world. And so I spent 13 months praying and asking God to kill me and take me home. Because I, I thought that's the only way I could really enjoy it. So I was dealing with some things and I didn't understand everything. But as a whole, I was just in a bubble. I didn't even understand what was going on because I was so focused on God. I wasn't seeing things in the natural. And an example of this is that 20 years after Vietnam, I was in Chicago, Illinois, holding a meeting and a man came to me and gave me a book that had 12 testimonies of Vietnam vets in it and the terrible things they went through and how God brought them out. And it was written as a number one bestseller on the New York uh, list because it was so well written and stuff. And he was one of the testimonies. He gave me the book, autographed it, and I knew he was going to ask me the next night if I read this book or not. So I had never read anything about Vietnam. I didn't care about Vietnam. I'm not one of these guys that still wears the boonie hat and lives in the past. You know, I, it was just a period of my life and, and it wasn't that big of a deal to me. And I'd never read anything about Vietnam, but I knew this guy was going to ask me. So I thought, well, I'll read his testimony. And I read it and it was really powerful. It was anointed. And so I thought I'll read another one. And I wound up reading all 12 of the testimonies. I stayed up all night long. Three of them were in, the, uh, were in Vietnam the exact same time I was there. Two of them were in the same division, the AmeriCal division. And I can't prove it because the guy didn't give the specifics and the details. But he wrote about an LZ, a landing zone that was on the border of Laos that was a forward uh, fire support base and you could see the Ho Chi Minh Trail and you could see the deuce and a halfs coming down and all of this. And I was at that place. I was a chaplain's assistant and I went out with the chaplain to administer uh, the equivalent of a, product, you know, a Catholic uh, last rites. 
This thing was going to be overrun and the chaplain knew it. And so the chaplain went out and held a service with them and then we left and the hill got overrun within five or six hours after the time we were there. And during the time that we were there, it was an area that was about the size of this room right here. And there was, I forgot how many men there were, but there was about like a hundred guys and they were entrenched in these bunkers and stuff. And we took 175 mortar rounds within that perimeter in three hours. We were being pummeled. And uh, you could see the muzzle fire from the weapons as they charged the hill. And we, as we got helicoptered out of there, uh, we took all kinds of hits on our helicopter. And it was a miracle that we got out of that place. But, you know, they didn't uh, treat chaplains the same as they treated everybody else. And so they pulled him out. And I was a chaplain's assistant and I left with him. But anyway, my point is, I was in this situation. And we were just being pummeled by these guys. And I had my M16 pointed down the hill. I could see the muzzle fire from their weapons. I never did fire my weapon because it was too far away. There was no point in firing. But I would have. And you know what? When I read this guy's story about that instance that I think I was there... Fear jumped on me 20 years after being in Vietnam. I read it through the eyes of an unbeliever. He wasn't saved at that time, and that hill was overrun, and he's one of the only guys that lived through that thing and became a prisoner of war. And I read it through his eyes, and fear jumped on me, and it took me a couple of days to get myself back where I was at peace and things like this. And it's like I saw that situation through the eyes of an unbeliever, and it just overwhelmed me. And yet, I remember exactly what was going through my head that day. Because I had been praying for months. Jesus, just take me out of this world. Let me die so that I could go to heaven. And as I had my gun pointed down the hill, I was thinking, Jesus, this could be the day. I could be in heaven before nightfall. And I was so excited. I was so happy thinking, God, this could be it. I was actually rejoicing. And then as I was pointing my gun at those guys, I was thinking about, what about these guys? They don't know you. And I was feeling compassion. I was praying for these Vietnamese. I'd have shot them if they'd have gotten close enough. But I was praying that God reveal yourself to them. And I had compassion and love flowing out of me for the guys that were trying to kill us. And I just was excited like this could be the day. And people think, what is wrong with you? You know what the difference was? I was seeing with my heart. I was looking at things from the spiritual realm. I didn't count my life dear unto me. I was so in love with Jesus that I didn't care about this life. I didn't care. I was ready to go. And you know what? You can live your life in such a way that if the doctor tells you you're going to die, you don't cry. It's like you reach up and kiss him. Awesome. And for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. It's even better. You can get to where you see things differently. Those scriptures I used yesterday from Psalms 42 and 43. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the health, help of his countenance. Man, if you're disquieted, if you're discouraged, it's because your hope isn't in God the way that it should be. Thank you for that thunderous silence. 
I'm not condemning anybody. I'm just trying to encourage you that whatever your problem is, God's supply is greater. And if you could see with your heart and appropriate God's supply, it is so much greater than whatever your problem is that it shrinks your problem down to where it's just a light affliction. It's no big deal. And you could live above it. You could rise above the criticism of the people who yell at you. The people who tell you that it can't work. You'll never get enough money. You'll never see this vision come to pass. The people who criticize the way you preach and the color of the carpet and this and that. You could get over those things. You could be so focused on Jesus that it'd be just fine. If everybody leaves you, you just turn around to the ones that left and says, there's the door. Will you also leave? That's what Jesus did. It doesn't matter if your church is split. I told somebody yesterday that anything that's alive has to have a bowel movement every once in a while. If they never move towards the back door, you're, you're sick. <laughs> you know what? You can overcome whatever the devil's throwing at you. You just need to look up. You need to lift up your eyes. You need to see with your heart. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah.